Well, let's look at the Matthew passage first. I, I have one of those scriptures that have all the red letters, and I just love how much of that was just a big block of red letters. That really speaks to my heart. Uh, can anyone remember what the question of the week is from our weekly e-newsletter? Yes, Yeshua criticized the Pharisees because they would lengthen the tassels on the corners of their garments for the sake of appearances, and they would make their phylacteries really big to get attention. And he criticized them for that. The question is, did Yeshua wear tassels? Did Yeshua maybe even wear phylacteries? And Sharon seems to think that he does. Uh, the HSV view is not quite like right. it. It's actually the translation of the Lord. The scripture says there's a prophecy that the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in his wing. Mm -hmm. And again, the wings there is the temples of the garment. So that is what she knew in the spirit. I couldn't touch that. And all the, I get healed. Mm -hmm. so. And uh, also, you know, the Hebrew word is tzitzit, as we know. But the Greek translation of the Torah renders tzitzit as kraspidon. And in the Gospels where it says that Yeshua, um, the woman, took hold of the hem, it says he took hold of the craspidon of his garment, which uh, is just chock full of meaning. Because these things represent dedication to the Father, our identity as holy people to him, and also a life lived in the parameters of his word. And so she knew there was healing in that. And maybe there's a greater significance there too. Perhaps it was more the Pharisees that wore the phylacteries. Could be. Because Yeshua is of the house of... Levi, was he not? Um, there's evidence his mother may have been, but legally through his adopted dad, he was of the house of David. Yeah. And there's evidence actually that Yeshua, in terms of his application of the Torah, was closer to the Pharisees than any other sect of Judaism at that time. So he might have worn one. a high probability. Now, Sharon, I, I, I think you're onto something with that. I think Mike is also. Here, here's a picture, a close-up of uh, phylacteries. Here's something interesting. Phylactery is actually a Greek word, and it means amulets or good luck charms. Greek people would see the Jewish people binding these little boxes on their, uh, on their forehead and on their, their hand, and they thought, oh, that must be some kind of a good luck charm to ward off evil spirits or something. But I actually like the little note here in my New American Standard uh, Bible. It says, uh, small cases containing scripture texts worn on the left arm and forehead for religious purposes. I thought the religious purposes clause was a little redundant. I can't imagine anyone doing that for secular purposes. But, uh, and actually, they're only partially right. See, I can tell the translators were all right-handed because if you're a right-hander, then you bind it on your left arm. But if you're left-handed like me, then you actually bind it on your right arm. Well, an interesting little trivial piece of data for you. Um, let's get to the next picture here. Uh, it's a little harder to see, but it's two soldiers from the IDF binding their tefillin, is the Hebrew term, on. And uh, that's, I'll, I'll teach you guys the Hebrew, because you don't want to call these things phylacteries if at all possible. They're not good luck charms. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, the, uh, the, the Hebrew root word for prayer is tefillah. Can we all say tefillah? And these are called tefillin, tefillin. Why? Because you bind them on your body when you pray. They symbolize prayer in many regards. Yeah, mezuzah is the box that goes in your doorpost that contains the scripture scrolls, and these go on you. Mm -hmm. Next picture. 
And here's a picture also of tzitzit, of uh, the Greek term craspidons that the master wore. So we, we've been talking about whether or not the master wore them. Mike, I think what you're saying is very true. The Torah ultimately is spiritual and hopefully we're experiencing it in our hearts on the deepest level. That's always the, uh, what it revolves around. However, we, we've been learning how the spiritual and the physical are never antithetical to each other. They go hand in hand. We're not just physical beings. We're not just spiritual beings. We're both. Just like Yeshua was both the son of Elohim, of God, and he was Ben-Adam, he was the son of man. We're a lot like that too. So here's, here's, here's my thought. Yes, they're spiritual, but Sharon quoted the verse from Deuteronomy, which says, bind these things as a sign upon your hand, and let them be frontlet, frontlets, totafot in the Hebrew, between your eyes. And that's actually a literal physical object. Um, signs are always literal physical objects. What they are is they're like a, what, what the, the, the typical expression is like an outward sign of an inward reality. Right? So like what you're saying, Mike, and what you're saying, Sharon. And uh, they're also signs. There's something in the four dimensions that we live in, the physical dimensions, that are like a picture of something in the fifth dimension, spiritual reality. So these, these for me, I think, are great examples of this. And uh, I, I think Yeshua probably did he, we know he wore tzitzit. He probably wore tefillin also. Now, did he walk around with them on all the time? Not necessarily. Um, there's, there's some variance in the Jewish tradition about how often they're worn. I have a set of tefillin, and I bind them once a week um, when I'm praying. And for me personally, it's one of the holiest moments of my week. It's like I just stop, and I totally zero in on the spiritual, and I literally get all tied up with God. I, I just get tied up in those things. And for me, it's a radical expression of devotion to Messiah. Saying, I love your word so much, I'm going to literally tie it to my body. And I mean, hey, my master did it, so it's okay. Here's, a, here's, a, here's another uh, item of evidence that Yeshua indeed wore them. This may not look very pretty, but these are little itty-bitty tefillin that were found at the Qumran, um, where the Qumran scrolls were found. So in other words, these are literally little tiny tefillin, and they, they're uh, from the Second Temple era, from the Messiah's time. And interestingly enough, they're made exactly to the same specifications that they're made in the Jewish world today. So here, here's another picture of these. That's one of the scrolls that were found rolled up inside of it. You can see that little itty-bitty writing there. And I don't know if there's another picture or not. You want to just check? No, we'll go back, back up. So, uh, and back one more up. So anyway, it's highly probable, yes, that Yeshua did, in fact, bind to fillin. And uh, Jewish people still do today. Well, if I just need to add, add you, Yeshua didn't say, don't be like the Pharisees that wear tefillin. Mm -hmm. He said, don't make your, don't make your tefillin wine. Mm -hmm. You've seen by men, and no, don't make your tefillin wrong. So he did not, if he said that, it was of condoning mm -hmm. of it, but in a prohibition, don't make your bed. Precisely. And uh, unfortunately, I think his words went largely unheeded. To fill in, in the Second Temple, there used to be very small little boxes. Today, they're considerably larger. And if you ever shop on the internet, let's say, for a set for yourself, you'll find that some of them are twice as big as others. They're big, honking to fill in. And they're just really impressive. With oh, yes. Um, there are four. Yes, there's Shema. That's correct. And then... Uh, there the four passages that mention tefillin, one of which is the Shema, are, are written on little itty-bitty scrolls in there. And uh, there's evidence that the Ten Commandments also used to be included in them. 
But there was a sect in Judaism that said we only need to keep the Ten Commandments, all the rest don't matter anymore. And in response to that, the uh, Jewish leadership took out the Ten Commandments and only had in the ones about to fill in. Just to emphasize that the whole Torah is uh, God's word and we can't take our doctrinal scissors to it without doing damage to ourselves. Mm-hmm. On the hand is the way you conduct yourself. Yeah. Uh, so it is. It, it finds. It's a spiritual concept. It finds a physical expression mm-hmm. in your conduct. Mm-hmm. So uh, like the Shabbat is a sign as well. Mm-hmm. You think and you do. Yes. Mm-hmm. What you think and what you do. Right. Hey, yeah. If you have those under control. Right. Hmm. Well, actually, when we get to the passage in Exodus, we're totifo is the original Torah term, or tefillin, are first mentioned, I'll bring mine, and I'll, I'll do a little demonstration for you guys. I think you'll find it fascinating. And like you're saying, Mike and Dan, like the, the symbolism is gripping too, because it's something that we live with every day. Uh, Yeshua has something to say about the Pharisees. Uh, we talked last week about Yeshua had very strong words for the Sadducees. He basically just wrote them off and said, you guys are in error, you don't know the scriptures, and you don't know God's power. But for the Pharisees, he had a different set of choice words. He didn't criticize them for not understanding the scriptures or God's power, but he said, you have issues, number one, with adding to the word of God, and you also have issues with not practicing what you preach. We call it hypocrisy, play acting. And uh, that's kind of the context, I believe, for Matthew chapter 23. Yeshua has a whole litany of things going on in the Pharisaic movement that were less than right. And he really points this out, and he puts his finger on them. And it's interesting that he doesn't do that with the Sadducees. Uh, Why? Well, probably because the Sadducees were an era period, but the Pharisees were doing some things right. They were, the, they were the closest movement in Judaism at that time to a correct application of the Torah, to uh, an accurate hermeneutic and interpretation of it, and uh, he, was, he was acknowledging that. We even talked about how Yeshua was invited to dinner by Pharisees. That tells us something very important, because Pharisees only invited other Pharisees to dinner. That means that the masters, his, uh, his observance of the Torah was scrupulous. It was high level. And we know, of course, that it wasn't just based on religious... Minutia for him, it, it, it was an expression of the passion in his heart for the Word of God, for his Father. And that's, that's a, something I really look up to about him. So he talks about sitting in the seat of Moses. The seat of Moses was actually a literal seat in the synagogue. After they read from the Torah, then they would, the, the, the teacher would sit down in the seat of Moses and he would teach. He would interpret the Torah of Moses, he would explain things, and they've actually unearthed one in, a, in an ancient synagogue. I hope you can all see the picture of that. That's the seat of Moses. And you can see right here where the person would sit when he was teaching. And the question is, was he just teaching from the Torah, or was he teaching oral law as well when he sat on that seat? I wonder. Do you have any, uh, have you done any reading about that? Well, I think, I think it, uh, they were just teaching the Torah from, from that seed. And, mm-hmm. uh, because it's a seed of Moshe, seed mm-hmm. of Moses. So that is what they would teach if they were sitting on that seed. Like when Yeshua was reading from the scroll in, uh, in, Yermia, in, in Isaiah, in Luke, uh, we read about it. He read this, the, the, the portion, the portion, and then he went and sat down. And everybody's eyes were focused on him. Mm-hmm. Why? I think he sat on, the, on Moses' seat at that time. Mm. That's why the eyes were 
fix, fixated on waiting for him to, to do uh, an exposition. Mm -hmm. And all he says today is these words have been controlled in your hearing. Yeah, I've questioned that too, because he says, they see it in the city of Moses, therefore what? Therefore, do everything that they tell you. Now, we know that Yeshua taught, you don't have to wash, like, um, wash your hands before you eat as a commandment, because that's not in the written word. So it would be inconsistent if Yeshua said, do everything that they tell you, as applied to washing your hands and this stuff. Therefore, Mike, I, I think you're probably right. You could infer from that that they, when they sat in the seat of Moses, they only taught the written Torah of Moses. They weren't teaching the extra-biblical traditions, which I think would qualify for what you read, Shoshana, the, the stuff that they bind heavy burdens on people that they can't bear. That's not the written Word of God. The written Word of God is not a burden. And we can do it by His grace. There are yeah. two translations that they came across from the Gibbage of Fruit that uh, says uh, the following, uh, Therefore, whatever He says to you, mm. So uh, there, there, there could have been a mistranslation, or maybe there was a later redaction change that they changed it to, to, to him. Mm. But uh, there are two uh, translations that, uh, that came across that actually said whatever he says to do, do mm. that. So don't do as they did because they, they, they say they do not. So mm. that's, that's a possibility that could have been uh, a little bit of interference. Yeah, and when the rubber meets the road, they're basically the same on a practical level, you know. The, the Pharisaic interpretations and applications of the Torah are correct to the degree that they stick to the written word. And uh, there's another interesting verse about that uh, a, a couple of verses later in verse 23. 23, 23, Yeshua says, Where do you, Pharisees, hypocrites? You tithe mint and dill and cumin, in other words, these little itty-bitty garden herbs and vegetables, or whatever, and you've neglected the weightier provisions of the Torah, justice, compassion, faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done with collecting the others. So he isn't saying it's, 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 it's not one or the other. It's not only the heart of the Torah and the weighty matters. He's saying you should continue with your passion for God in the small details of life, tithing your seeds and your garden herbs. But just don't forget the heart of the matter while you're doing that. So again, Yeshua is affirming the Pharisaic interpretation there. But he's kind of pointing to the bigger picture also. Uh, moving on to the next picture. There's a verse here that is why I, I generally prefer not to be called rabbi. Because, well, like, generally, in, in Judaism today also, rabbi connotes a certain level of academic education and credentials that I don't have. I, I have a lot of background in studying the scriptures. I live in the Hebrew text. Um, I'm a very Jewish individual, and the, my teaching is the outpouring of my soul in that regard. But I, you know, I, I've never been ordained by a rabbinical institute. And also, I think for us as Messianic believers, the term rabbi is very special. Because Yeshua and Amsi say, don't be called rabbi. Why? One is your teacher, and you're all brothers. So for me anyway, to reserve that ter term for the Messiah is cool. Because it reminds us, he's our ultimate teacher. And uh, he's not only the founder of this movement, he's the leader of this movement almost 2,000 years later. <laughs> If you want to flip to the next one, too. Uh, something we touched on already in verse 23. He talked about how these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. And I drew up a little diagram here to uh, illustrate that. In the center, we have Yeshua's example. Check. Loving God. Check. Keeping Torah. And uh, this goes all the way back to Mount Sinai. He said, I, I keep chesed. I keep my grace with those who, one, love me, and two, keep my commandments. 
they've always gone hand in hand. We see that in the book of Revelation also in 14 verse 12 and 12, 17, I think are the references, where it talks about this is the, those who, uh, who have their faith in Yeshua and keep the commandments of Elohim. So that's Yeshua's example. Now on the right, we have some things that he criticized the Pharisees for. Legalism, adding to the Torah, doing too much. And that is an error that many people are prone to. However, on the other end of the spectrum, it's also possible to fall into lawlessness, which is where we subtract from the Torah, where we do too little. And I just love Yeshua's example. He was so bang on. He, he loved the Father with all his heart, and he was also passionate in his observance of the Word. He, he took the, uh, the call to obedience very seriously. And I want to point out a couple ironies, actually. Um, uh, there's a trend in the Messianic movement I've seen to embrace the Torah, and this is a good trend, to, to get more in touch with God's law. But I've also sometimes seen that in the process of embracing God's law, there's a, a certain degree of almost spiritual anarchy that can creep in. And I don't understand it, but I've seen this trend sometimes in the Messianic movement, in some Messianic congregations. And I think sometimes it can be expressed as like being anti-leadership, anti-structure, um, anti-order. There is a place for leadership and structure and order, as long as it's, I, I believe, subjected to the Holy Spirit and the leading of the Holy Spirit. And uh, based on Scripture, and hopefully all pointing to Messiah. So anyway, I, I'm a firm supporter of Scriptural leadership, of structure and order in, in a congregation, in the way we do congregational life. As long as it's founded in the Word. And there might be a time for that too. You know, like if, if you have been in a suppressive environment and the Father brings you out of that, there might be a time just to kick up your heels and skip like the calf and, and enjoy that. Um, <laughs> I, I like that too. Um, I think another, another irony is uh, in chapter 23, verse 12. We talked a little about legalism. And uh, in chapter 23, oh, sorry, in tw chapter 24, verse 12, Yeshua talks about lawlessness, the opposite end of the spectrum. He says, because lawlessness, and the, the uh, Greek there is uh, anomia. Uh, uh, nomia is like the Torah referring to law, and a is without, like amoral is without morals. So um, you could read that as lawlessness. You could even read that as Torahlessness in the original Hebrew thinking. Because lawlessness or toilessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. And to me, this is almost paradoxical to the way many of us think or, 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 or have sometimes thought. Um, often we have this thought, well, you know, the degree to which God's law is implemented in our lives is the degree to which we will be cold and religious and legalistic people. But Messiah says, no. The fact is, God's law equals hot love. God's law equals fervency in our spirits when we have the right relationship to it. And hopefully that is a relationship based on a righteousness in Messiah, the shed blood that he, uh, that he supplied so that we could be forgiven, our, our, our right standing with the Father, and the grace that is upon us that enables us to, to live for him 100% and do the stuff he said. So I, I find that kind of an irony <laughs> that some people think that lawlessness equals love and God's law equals not love. It's actually the opposite. Notable that Yeshua said what has to happen before the end comes. It's not world wars. It's not global cataclysms. It's not a lot of the things that make people shake in their boots and begin to freak out. It's when this good news of the kingdom 
is proclaimed in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. Then the end will come. So here's, here's what I take from that. Our worldview as a people isn't to be oh, watching the news to see how many uh, catastrophes are happening so we'll know when the end will come. Our, our job as a people is to be focused on getting the good news out to the world and proclaiming it to the nations. That's our job. And, you know, we can leave the rest with him. He'll notify us when it's time. For I say to you from now on, you shall by no means see me until you say, Baruch Habab Hashem Yahweh. He will come in the name of the Lord. That is a sign when, when, when Jerusalem, when Israel says that, blessed is he who comes in the name. Wow. That is when we know, watch out. That is the introduction of the truth. Amen. That's powerful. And Paul had that in mind too, I'm sure, when he said that hardness in part has come upon Israel for a time until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And then all Israel will be saved. I, I think when the formation of the state of Israel has cataclysmed, what's the word? Catalyzed. Yeah, I was thinking cataclysm, but catalyzed uh, a great awakening, a spiritual awakening amongst believers in Messiah. Or for another instance, when Jerusalem was taken in 67, Wow, uh, there was a massive outbreak of the, the Holy Spirit waking people up after that. I, I personally think those events were, uh, they were connected to each other. Another, another very important note about this good news of the kingdom being proclaimed. You know, you know kind of the concept, well, you know, pray the sinner's prayer and ask Jesus into your heart and you'll become a Christian and then you'll go to heaven when you die. You know, sometimes, like, in a nutshell, that's the gospel that's preached today. I do not believe that's the gospel of the kingdom. Maybe that's a good place to start, asking him into your heart and, and, and praying that way. That is a good place to start. And ending up with him in heaven is a great place to finish. But I think the gospel of the kingdom is something much bigger than that. And I think it's something that applies to our world today to a much greater degree. I, I, the gospel of the kingdom was what Yochanan, John the Immerser, proclaimed. And basically said, the king is coming, he's almost here, so get your lives in order. Get ready for God's government. And Yeshua is coming again to rule the nations with a rod of iron, which is the Hebrew idiom for a dictatorship, for a very firm government. And he is going to rule from Jerusalem. And there are a lot of people in this world who haven't clued into that fact yet. And as a result, their lives are drastically out of order. They're not right with God. But when you realize there is a king who is coming to set up God's kingdom, the response is you begin to... Do what you know you should be doing. And maybe that's an aspect of the kingdom. Um, we've been talking even uh, at our biblical new month celebration about there are prophecies that have yet to have been fulfilled that are going to be fulfilled in the kingdom during the thousand-year reign of Messiah from Jerusalem. Some of those are like Shabbat being a global day of worship, uh, restoration to the biblical calendar of you know, planet Earth. We'll just be doing that. You know, The first day of every biblical month will be a big day of worship. It says that at the end of Isaiah. The nations will be going up to Jerusalem for Sukkot. If they don't send people, they're not getting any rain that year. I mean, these are, this is, I believe, this is part of the gospel of the kingdom. This is going to be good news for planet Earth. So. I heard somewhere that the rod of iron also stands for Torah. So in other words, the rod of iron would be the rule of Torah. I'm sure. Because the heart of Torah is justice. And Messiah is passionate about justice. And he's going to institute that when he returns fully, isn't he? 
Um, interesting too, that Yeshua talks about when you see the abomination of desolation, and he says in verse 21, for then there'll be a great tribulation. So when you see this thing, there's going to be a great tribulation. It's interesting that he talks to his disciples like they're going to be there and they're going to see it. Hmm. I, I find that interesting. Um, well, didn't the Romans do that when they oh. attacked Israel? Oh, it I know what it is. It's what was spoken of through Daniel the prophet. Right. Let the reader understand. That's the Hanukkah story. What was spoken of through Daniel the prophet is the Hanukkah story. And Antiochus Epiphanes, as he called himself, was a prototype of the anti-Messiah. And what he set up was a prototype of this abomination. And it's, it was probably shocking to the Jewish people when Yeshua talked about that, because they thought that these prophecies in Daniel had already been fully fulfilled. As it turned out, they weren't. It was like a prophetic harmonic that happened in Antiochus' time, and it was going to happen maybe on a bigger level or something. When this happens again, he offered a pig on the altar in the temple. Yeah. So when this happens again, is, is that when the temple is desecrated again? Is that what he's meaning? I think I'd th be sticking to the most literal sense. I think it could very well be something like that. Yeah. Which means there might have to be a rebuilding of the temple in Israel first. Yeah. But they have that in the works. It's interesting, too, that in verse 20, he talks about Shabbat as if it was something that was still going to matter, matter to his disciples 2,000 years later. He says, pray that your flight won't be in the winter. We're on a Sabbath. You know, if, if we believe that Shabbat has no place in the life of believers today or it's irrelevant or whatever, this verse is kind of hard to understand. <laughs> so maybe there is a place for that. Um, I just want to share... A couple things from the parasha here, and then we'll wrap up. And we can continue our discussion at the Oneg table also. Uh, at the beginning of this parasha, Joseph is dead. Yeshua's Yeshua's bro uh, sorry, Joseph's brothers believe that he is dead and gone. Joseph is no more. And the people of Israel today, Yeshua, son of Joseph's brothers, believe that he is no more. He is dead and gone. Maybe he was a good Jew. Maybe he wasn't a rabbi that upheld the Torah, but there's been such a mess that's happened since then that most Jewish people don't even want to consider that fact. He is gone, and he's not a part of our Jewish world, and end of story. That's the idea. Interestingly enough, in the Joseph story, that wasn't where it ended, was it? It was not the end of the story. Joseph was alive. Joseph had power to deliver the people of Israel in a time of global crisis. Joseph was in a uh, position of great authority. And strangely enough, Joseph didn't look like your regular son of Jacob. He didn't look like your traditional Jew. His head was shaved. He was probably clean-shaven. Maybe even had some wild-looking Egyptian makeup on. Uh, he spoke Egyptian and they needed a translator. What does this tell us about Yeshua? What does this tell us about his relationship with the people of Israel in the last 2,000 years? Appearance doesn't matter. Yeah. It also tells us that I don't think he's just given up. I think that he's going to reveal himself in a very dramatic way to the people of Israel. And I believe that it's going to be a very emotional experience on both sides. We read in the story that when Joseph revealed himself to his brothers, he was intensely emotional. Like he wept his heart out. He embraced them. When Yeshua reveals himself to the Jewish people before he comes back, 
I wonder if that isn't something that's close to his heart. I wonder if he won't be doing that with great tears welling up in his eyes. Maybe there will be weeping on both sides. Maybe it'll be like a massive reconciliation. I think it will be. And I, I really look forward to that. I really believe that that is why the Father is causing this movement to materialize. Why he is causing congregations like this to pop up all over the place. It's a move of his Holy Spirit. He's preparing for that, that great unveiling, shall we say, of Messiah. It, it's very notable also in uh, Genesis chapter 45, verse 1, who was with Joseph in the room when he revealed himself to his brothers? No. Nobody. Could it be that Yeshua, if he so chooses to do, can just reveal himself to the people of Israel unilaterally? Maybe he, does, maybe he won't even need the help of a lot of Christian missionaries or, or other people. You know, don't get me wrong. People who are passionate about communicating the good news of Yeshua to Jewish people, I love that. That's part of our mandate. But I think that when Yeshua reveals himself to the Jewish people, it's going to be so much bigger than what we could ever imagine. And it's going to be so much more supernatural. And interestingly enough, I, I'm sure some of you are, are aware of this, this dynamic in the Muslim world right now. There are many Muslims who who have their roots at some point back in history in Jews who converted to Islam or even some of the northern tribes that were dispersed into that region. And what is Yeshua doing today? He's supernaturally revealing himself to Muslims all over the place. They have dreams of him in the night. He appears to them in visions. I even uh, heard an account recently of where he appeared in a vision of the night to every household in a whole village. 50 or 60 households, they all woke up in the morning and they said, I, they were kind of putting their feelers out because it's like, it's criminal to believe in Yeshua in an Islamic uh, area. But they put their feelers out and they discovered they all had the same vision of the same guy. And they all came to faith in him. And interestingly enough, this was the village where the very first Christian missionary to Muslims was martyred. Yeah, it's, it's a phenomenal story. Um, there's, a, there's a missiologist, like a guy who specializes in missions named Fred Markert with YWAM, and he has talk after talk where he talks about these things going on in the Muslim world. And it just, if that doesn't send chills through you, I don't know what will. It's like our God is so big, he's so powerful, he's so on the move, and Yeshua is so revealing himself without anybody in the room, to Muslims, to Jews, to a lot of people. And I'm, just, I'm just so excited to be caught up in something so exciting. Um, no man can take credit then when, when uh, the Lord does it through his Holy Spirit. Yeah. Nobody can take credit, no denomination, no movement, no man. Yeah, amen. It's going to be about him. No, but it, it's, it happens though so much that this credit thing is going on. Mm -hmm. Here's something interesting. Yeshua says his brother, or sorry, Joseph. I get them confused because they're so similar in my mind. But Joseph says, you're not going to see my face until something. Until you bring Benjamin, until you're all there. I think that applies on two levels. Benjamin, I believe, in the big picture symbolizes Jewish believers in Yeshua. Because Benjamin was really close to Joseph. Uh, you know, he drank from Joseph's cup. He ate at Joseph's table. He, had five, he got five times as much. I think it might even picture Messianic Jews. Because Benjamin never rejected Joseph. He wasn't part of that. And so it is with Messianic Jews also. Maybe could it be that for the people of Israel to behold the full face of Yeshua, they'll need to have Messianic Jews somewhere in there too, just like they needed Benjamin. And on a, on a, on a broader, even more practical level for the body of Messiah, maybe if we want to see the face of Messiah, we need all of us. 
together to be able to see him? One by one by one. Yeah. Uh, for me, there's, there's something about unity in there. Okay, one more thing. I'm going to do a really quick Hebrew lesson. One more. Oh, that's some cool pictures of tzitzit. And here's our Hebrew lesson. It talks about this in um, 46 verse 4. I really love how this passage. Um, Elohim appears to Yaakov and he says, I will go down, I'll descend with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Yosef will close your eyes. And uh, there's a Hebrew verb there for going up, and there's a Hebrew verb for going down. And they're very big verbs in Hebrew. The one there is Allah. Can we say that together? Allah. Uh, to go up is La'alot. Can we say that? La'alot. You may be familiar with that term in, in the Hebrew word Aliyah. What does that mean? To return? Yeah. When you immigrate to Israel, when you go up to Israel, that's called making Aliyah. And that's, that's the root, to go up. Um, the other word here is Yarad. Can we say that? To go down or to descend is Lagadet. Can we say that? And uh, you may be familiar with that term in the word Yardain, or as we say in English, Jordan. Why do they call it the Jordan Valley? Because you've got to go down to get there. It's a valley. You go down. <laughs> so that's our, that's our Hebrew, Hebrew lesson for today. Let's, let's finish there. Shalom, I'm Izzy Avraham, and thank you for joining me for this talk. I delivered these messages live during the years I was leading a congregation. They're now hosted by my Hebrew school, Holy Language Institute, at holylanguage.com. If you're interested in the talks I've done since then, or if you'd just like to say thank you for these teachings, become a member at holylanguage.com.